Welcome to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders, hosted by Mike Sakopoulos and produced by the American Association for Physician Leadership. Remember Henry Luce? Don't feel badly. Most people cannot recall the American magazine magnate who founded Time, Life, Fortune, and Sports Illustrated magazines. How about Mark Zuckerberg? We consume news and information in different ways than past generations. It is both an opportunity and a challenge for physicians to make use of social media platforms to inform and connect with each other and patients. Today, I will be speaking with a physician who has spent considerable time and effort making the most of social media. Let's learn from a physician leader next on Sound Practice. Embrain the Hall is a physician executive who's worked in numerous areas of medicine, including community health, and is now practicing digital medicine. She's held numerous positions, both in government and in private practice. She has a national platform that has over 234,000 followers on LinkedIn. I'm Brenda Howell. Welcome to Sound Practice. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's my pleasure. I think it's important to set the stage for our conversation. Please describe your online activities. What platforms do you use? How frequently do you post? Give us some idea about what you're doing. Yeah, so um, just also for a bit of a preface, I've worked in the emergency department, so I think fellow physicians will understand (laughs) that personality type. So I'm a very, very high energy person who has a lot of words. I'm also a pediatrician by training. Um, I post a lot, often multiple times a day. So what I would say is that I'm here to share some best practices that are applicable to people who are not me um, and to really surface some takeaways and nuggets. But personally, yes, I am primarily on LinkedIn, which is where I have close to a quarter million followers um, that range countries and um, intersect different fields. So not limited to uh, medicine or healthcare. I'm actually, doctors are a good number of people who follow me, but still might be more of a fraction than, you know, majority. So I, um, my approach actually is not necessarily to generate a lot of new content, but I tend to constantly browse what's going on. I'm constantly looking at the feed. And, and I think this also probably is why I worked in policy because you need to read the room, be aware, understand what constituents or patients are experiencing. And then I often will um, repost somebody else's post, somebody who I think is a respected thought leader, is an established organization, And then I add my own thoughts and either I say agree, and then maybe I add an anecdote from my experience, or I find a way to kind of like respectfully disagree and say something like caveat or something, um, you know, something that indicates I'm going to disagree. And I actually find, and even if you look at the science behind what goes viral, I'm not actually somebody who goes viral. I don't think I'm controversial enough. I have a following. I get you know a few thousand views that are on my post, but I don't. I rarely do I get fifty thousand. So um, what what attracts the brain is something that affirms your beliefs about the world or your biases or your values. 
plus something novel and interesting. So that combination tends to work to engage people. And so I think that when I post about something, about somebody who's adjacent to me or in the same field, um, so, you know, for instance, I've been posting about Silicon Valley Bank a lot recently. I'm, I find it fascinating, but now that I'm in digital health and health tech, it's very relevant to me. So I think people are like, oh, why is a pediatrician posting on a bank? Right. And then I can add my perspective. And I think people find that juxtaposition of two views interesting. I think you're I think you're right. Let's drill down a little bit on that. What motivated you to commit to this level of a online presence? So I'm Gen X. And so I've um I'm the generation who pretty much created the internet, right? Um, I can't remember when I wasn't online. Um, I, you know, was on things that don't even exist anymore. I can't even remember their names. I, I, I'm that person who always has had a account. Initially, I started off more anonymous. And then I just, on every platform, I've developed a bit of a following. And also like sometimes, unfortunately, I think very lonely people who overattach to me. So I've also encountered some <laughs> interesting situations, let's say. We'll let that be theater of the mind, uh, Doctor. Um, has your online interactions, have they impacted how you practice medicine? A hundred percent. So um, it's impacted how I uh, practice medicine. And I think that it, the good and bad is that you have an interaction with people who are patient advocates, policymakers, um, you know, without having to make an appointment. Uh, and so they're, the good of that is that you have, it's just like town square, right? The challenge of that is that for everybody else that you has, have a professional responsibility to reflect well on your profession and to maintain privacy of any patient encounter. Um, but other people have access to all of your information, including like your NPI number. Right. So you have to be very mindful of that. And while there is risk to that, there's also risk to staying silent. Right. And not having a voice or not having a presence. Uh, but I think specifically to your question, I would say that it, it has given me access to patient stories and perspectives. And even the majority of the time when I start off with a patient, a negative interaction with somebody who's in maybe sharing about their medical trauma. What I've been able to say is that I'm here to show humility and, and curiosity and not curiosity in a scientific, I wanna examine you way, but a, I genuinely wanna understand your experience. I'm here to learn, you're the expert on you, please educate me. And I just find that really diffuses the majority of situations. It occurs to me that in the age of TikTok and Reels patients may be changing too. Mm -hmm. uh, does this type of social media use alter patients as historians of their their issues or their complaints? Um, uh, do you find? Yeah, so there's so much to unpack in that. So it's interesting because what on one hand I think both I've seen doctors go off the deep end um, during the pandemic as well as. I've seen patients also change because the nature of the reality is social media is a business. It's an industry. 
Um, our brains are plastic and can be molded. And, you know, the more you fire a certain neuron, the more synapses, you know, are get strong. And, you know, so that happens that your use of social media changes your brain for good and bad. Um, so I do think that the nature of algorithms and engagement metrics and the dopamine released by, oh, I just got, you know, 5,000 likes um, can cause people to go from being their authentic selves to curated, driven by the algorithm. And I think that what I what worries me as somebody who is actually very much in the patient space these days, uh, communicating as a doctor who is also a patient or a patient who's also a doctor, is um, is I see how the narrative kind of moves towards what gets the most engagement, um, and sometimes that is about finding um, community through shared, um, you know. Traumatic experiences, um, and I don't, and that's something. So, so I'm actually currently working on an online platform for women's health, and that's something I think about a lot as a women's health patient. Is that can there is medical trauma? That's un, undoubtedly. If you bring one traumatized person into an online space with another traumatized person, what happens in that space in between? And are the profit-driven algorithms designed to addict you to social media really creating safe spaces? Or, you know, do we need to do we need better moderation or legislation or policy? Or do we need to just kind of what they say online, like touch grass? Like, do we need to find ways to connect online and then go offline to rebuild authentic human communities in person? Interesting. Let's talk a little bit more about these online communities. I've seen a number of Facebook groups for specific diseases. Certain conditions uh, have online support groups, as you know. People seem to draw comfort and empowerment from these, these platforms. Are ideas and regulations related to patient privacy counterproductive or anachronistic when it comes to these platforms? So um, quick answer, no, we absolutely need privacy laws. Um, it is essential. We have, unfortunately, um, within our own industry, um, medicine is a profession, but healthcare is an industry. Um, there have been splashed headlines across, you know, about hospitals selling patient data to places like Facebook, Facebook selling, you know, I'm probably never going to get a job at Facebook now, but, <laughs> but um Whatever social media platform you want. There's talk about banning TikTok. On the other hand, personally, as a woman in my 40s, I actually, as somebody who has a scientific background um, and is just a natural skeptic, I do go to TikTok, frankly, myself. To I, I have gotten, I have gotten a lot of good information, albeit there's also a lot of bad information. Right. But I, I mean, I, I don't and I really struggle. Right. So I'm a woman of color. My family is a Pakistani South Asian background. I'm Muslim. I've come from a community that's been under surveillance. And, you know, for me, I, you know, Malala is a country. You know, I, I was I'm American, but like of a similar ethnic background. Hmm. I am not going to go quiet. hundred. That is just like you look at women in Iran and Pakistan and Afghanistan. We do not go quiet. Right, we've got an important voice. We don't care what you come at us with. We've got something to say. 
-hmm. right? So there's that part of me. Um, on the other hand, I'm a pediatrician and an aunt, right? And I think, of, and I just said, our brains are very plastic. We do have a responsibility towards those with developing brains, those with, you know, there's evidence that those who do moderation for places like Facebook, there was actually a lawsuit about the PTSD they developed from occupational hazard of reviewing violent content, right? So, um, I mean, we, we, if it, if it didn't make a difference to how you think, there wouldn't be multi-million billion dollar businesses around it. And I'm a pediatrician, right? We're the ones who got the seatbelt laws in place. Um, we're just like pro-regulation and pro, we kind of like have worked in government. I do believe in the power of government. I understand, you know, the constitution was written with a balance of powers and I get that we have to have checks and balances and it shouldn't be all government. That's just not American culture. But I'll, I'll admit, I, I, but I, I think that I'm different from the average pediatrician because I have done a ton of activism. And for me, um, social media has been critical to community building and grassroots organizing. As you talk about regulation or potential regulation, it makes me think that as I was preparing to, to talk with you, I reviewed the model policy guidelines for social media uh, produced by the Federation of State Medical Boards yesterday. It's five years old, um, pre-COVID. Is it hopeless to think that regulators can keep pace with physician online options? So this is a, a bit of almost like a strategic question almost, or a philosophical question, as well as you do have to drill down to processes. So the question is, how should regulations be created? You know, by whom, at what level? This should be federal, should it be state, should it be local, should it be all of the above, should it be international, right? Because especially, again, digital health. I was interviewed for a role, uh, for a chief medical officer role for a digital health company that had footprints both in US and Europe. How do you operate a digital health company when you are going to have data that's, you know, international, right? Mm -hmm. um, we're starting to think about, we're starting to think about international clinical trials and, you know, have, and that allows us to meet some diversity goals as well, or do maybe digital health for dermatology on, you know, more melanated skin, which is very needed, mm -hmm. right? So we, um, so regulation, again, if you are not, they say, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. <laughs> um, and so it's coming at you, whether you want to or not. And if it's very much happening in Europe, um, I think that the challenge, and I've actually led stakeholder engagement for a $1.8 billion reform and restructuring Medicaid. So I've been in the weeds of exactly what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. There is a way I'm going to sound very butterfly unicorn right now, but I genuinely do believe there is a way to bring people together respectfully at the table, set some, you know, basic kind of, you know, rules of engagement and allow people to speak and contribute to policy. I think there is a way, and I think, you know, we always focus on elections and, you know, elections have consequences, but the thing is that where the rubber meets the road is not really the election that's important. It's the process of governing, right? It's the day-to-day, -day, like if you're only showing up at the ballot box to you know, promote your perspective on life, you're not being a full citizen. 
you need to show up repeatedly and engage with your elected official, your public servant who works for you and uses your tax dollars to say, this is how it should, and, and bring them anecdotes, bring them um, data. I mean, personally, one of the ways I kept getting, you know, invited to senator's offices and then the White House, and then invited to the, you know, to the White House by President Obama is because I just would show up like pediatricians do and be like, oh, I already did all the work for you here. Would you like this? I know you're going into a hearing. I know you're going into, you know, you, you, you might need this for your press release. And then this is, again, how you can use social media. You can communicate what's important. You can highlight what's happening in your community. And, you know, physicians genuinely, particularly primary care doctors, but any physician is inherently a leader. And, you know, through the AAPL, that is what we teach, right? Every physician is a leader. You have valuable community stories without violating patient privacy to share. Example, again, Silicon Valley Bank. There was a thread about a woman who was like, look, everybody assumes this is just the coastal elites and tech bros. Um, and, you know, but I'm a woman who is in the 2% of female founders who hustled really hard. I live in the Midwest. I have kids. This affects uh, hardworking Americans and small businesses. And I, I'm struggling to make payroll. And all my hard work might go down the tubes. A physician is in a great position to tell a local story without violating patient privacy, similar to, to that, to really kind of focus because empathy works on the single person. And one way that doctors don't understand messaging and branding and narrative is we are trained, you know, um, RTCs, randomized controlled trials, big data. Nobody has empathy for a database. You have empathy for a human. Yeah. And we are in the field. I mean, it's called Health and Human Services, HHS. It's a maybe a mammoth like federal agency that people love to maybe like throw darts at or something, but <laughs> Health yeah. and Human Services. Well, well said. Let, let's shift gears a little bit to, um, to the practical. Sure. Aesthetic practices seem to lead the way with the use of online activities to attract patients. Mm -hmm. Is there a difference in attracting elective cash pay patients versus Medicare patients? It's a good question. So, I mean, I'm in, I am in business school and I guess, you know, I have this innate sense of branding. And as we were talking before we started this brand really to me is what people say about you when you're not in the room. Um, and as, if somebody were going to introduce you, be like, oh, you should talk to so-and-so because that's your brand, right? And so I think you do need to know who are you. I mean, it can feel kind of icky kind of when you're just sort of thinking in business terms, like who's my customer? How do I attract them? You know, that does kind of sound icky. But frankly, if you are patient-centered, you need to understand who is a patient population you're serving. Are you an academic medical center? Are you a rural? Are you suburban? You know, who's, what are the age groups or what is the demographics? What, what attracts them? What puts them off? Know those things, right? That's whether you're having a one-on-one -on -one conversation and motivational interviewing for behavioral change or online, right? Just a little harder when you're talking to a, the world, but um, 
I think that visuals, yes, we are visual creatures, right? Restaurants paint their walls red because it makes you eat more, right? Um, we are visual creatures. So use visuals, use infographics. Um, you know, the average American reads at a grade school level. Um, you don't have to talk down to people, but you can just acknowledge how our brain works. And in fact, one of the things I learned in business school is to take my previous public health slides covered in data and boil it down to like three icons with like 10 words, right? And I'm presenting to people at MIT. I'm not talking down to them, but I'm just having an awareness of how brains work and working with that reality. Makes makes good sense to me. Marie, what's um maybe you can help me bust a cyber myth. Sure. Is social media just for the younger demographics? I mean, I'm over 40, so I don't think so, but <laughs> um no, I mean I think that so it is true that younger demographics have grown up where this their world is social media, right? And then we had the pandemic, they even went to school on, on online. But I think that, and I think that those of us who, like, again, I'm in that, in that sort of transition generation um, where in my twenties, like all of these spaces were out there and I was on all of them, right? Um, but not a lot of a lot of people who were in the you know busy studying or whatever going through residency weren't. Um, I think that uh, there is an important role for people who are more mature or who are more senior to be on social media. I think there's a necessary gravitas that is missing. It is hard. I mean, so personally on Twitter, if you go to me and you go to another account, I have like five times as many tweets as anybody else. I create tweet threads or tweet tweetorials. And, you know, there's a term tweetiatrician. Um, and so um, I don't have a lot to say. And what I have to say is nuanced. It doesn't fit into a tweet, right? Or I don't use a so-called correct terms for whatever I'm talking about to fit into those characters. In which case, then in the next tweet, I try to use the right terms. And if somebody dings me on the first tweet, then I can say, well, wait, I'm, I have more to offer, right? And so there is a way to customize how you communicate to your style. You will, no matter what you do, you will be criticized. But again, as we were talking about before we started, one of the takeaways from the Silicon Valley Bank uh, demise that happened in 48 hours was some of it was driven by Twitter and social media. And you have a organization that works, a bank, relies on trust, that works with entrusted uh, relationships behind closed doors a lot of the time. And something that was communicated in that space ended up on social media, right? So you cannot be present on social media, but social media is going to come to you. So do you want to have somebody else control that narrative or do you want to have established your brand, let people know what you're about, attract the correct demographic to what services you provide, right? Um, you know, if somebody, if somebody has, I, I, while my policy work has been all ages, I don't see 80 year olds as a pediatrician, right? Fair enough. People need to know what is sure. it that I do, right? 
So That's I true. think that if you, from your point, as you ask the question, it's very pragmatic. It's not about being a showboat. Um, it's not about not being humble opposite. Like I said, go out there and say, I'm here to learn. Patients have their like an entire encyclopedia of lived experience. I'm here to be educated. And if you show that humility, I can tell you so many patients are so appreciative of it. But yeah, a lot of people have medical trauma and it's real and we, we have to acknowledge that and we have to have compassion for that. And sometimes somebody's going to come at you with something that somebody else did to them and it's not your fault. But as, as physicians, that's kind of what we deal with, right? Unfortunately, we deal with people when they are in pain, when they're scared. A lot of our patients have experienced different kinds of trauma. And, and there is rising, you know, violence actually in hospitals against, you know, healthcare workers, which is very concerning. Um, and it's not right that we take on that, those risks. I mean, we also deserve protection whether it's our data privacy or our physical uh, um, well-being. But this is a space we live in, which is where people are scared, they're in pain, they have experienced trauma, and they're looking to us for answers. And I've done a lot of work on patient-centered care, so I genuinely do believe in shared decision-making, co-creation, respecting the patient, um, yeah, I could, I could go on, but. <laughs> sure, and um, in addition to the quality information that you're, you're talking about, there's also a fair amount of, of misinformation yes. um, that, that, that's out there. And, and Mark Twain famously said, never argue with stupid people. They will bring you down to their level and beat you with experience. <laughs> what, what's a physician to do? So I will, I have, um, I have, I've been, so I'll just preface by saying I have been on the board of the American Academy of Pediatrics in Massachusetts and, you know, very involved in my professional society as well as, you know, broadly in the, as a physician and physician leader. Um, I, I do, though, sometimes um, openly uh, invite the AAP um, to really reflect on exactly what you're talking about, because we have been, you know, encouraged to be like tweediatricians for like more than a decade, go out there put information out there about vaccines, counter the misinformation. Um, but things have gotten really kind of, frankly, sometimes scary um, in terms of the level of, um, I mean, you just read the news, right? There's been some very concerning threats made to some of my peers who are just out there providing information. Um, so it's not just, and so I do now advise people, it's not just about go out there because your voice is important. Yes, it is. Be strategic. Your safety also matters. Your professional um, safety also matters. Plan ahead, right? Read the room, understand the trends. What, are, what, is, what is your brand? What do you want to be known by? You can't do all things at all time for all people, right? Um, use infographics um, and um, do understand and, and, and assess risk and then plan fully risk mitigate or assess your personal risk appetite, right? So personally, like I said, I think maybe partly my ethnic background and, you know, what I, I you know, I have a lot of female relatives in Pakistan who are physicians who go into villages of bearded men and talk about birth control. Right. 
Um, and so that's normal to me. Um, I It does invite sometimes, um, and they can do so from within the culture and say, you know what, Islam actually allows this. Um, but it's an education. You might still run into somebody who has a pretty extreme reaction, whether in any country, right? You just have to be aware of that. Um, I do think that we have a respons professional responsibility to go out there and educate. I think that we need to approach it with sort of like there's a mammodities prayer or oath, like do so with humility. Um, I know that I engender a bit more trust because I can say I'm a woman of color. None of very few uh, randomized controlled trials include my data. Mm -hmm. And so and I can say, I understand that that is a problem, right? And I've worked in insurance. And one of the things that started to really bother me was I was just like, we're imposing so-called evidence-based guidelines, but that evidence is not inclusive of all humanity, right? Like we just saw that the pulse ox that was used to measure oxygen, which was really important in the pandemic, didn't work on darker skin. Right. Right. And so I think that when we come with humble acknowledgement of gaps and say, look, science is not about having this stiff spine and like, I know it all. St science is about the, the, this intense curiosity of like, oh my God, I want to learn more and more and more and more. And knowing that there's this vastness of the truth that you will never understand in your, in your lifetime. Right. And science is always an advancing edge of knowledge against ignorance and a willingness to say, I was wrong. You know, this new trial reverses what we thought was true. Well, well said. In these times of physician burnout, can you make the case to your colleagues for social media use? It has to be customized. I think that you cannot be kind of like, so-and-so is doing it, now I need to do it. If you're going to do that, you are going to fail and fail miserably and, and just don't, you know, be, be, I think that we have gotten into a space as physicians where we were busy seeing patients and all of these regulations got piled onto us. I just saw a study that said a primary care doctor needs 27 hours a day just to do all the guidelines and paperwork and everything. And that's not even clowning sleep or anything. Right. And so I think that with there, that's inhumane. That's just unreal. It's not mathematical. They're not 27 hours in the day, right? It's illogical. Um, so I think that understand who, who are you trying to reach? Why? What is your risk tolerance? What is your personal risk? So again, I'm a woman. I'm a woman of color. There are certain things. I'm a Muslim. There are things that are going to come at me online that are just going to be because of my identity or because I'm a pediatrician and I'm pro-vaccine, right? I choose that risk. You have to be aware of what risks could come at you. You have to be aware of the risks of silence um, and then make a strategy, right? And personally, again, I post all the time, but I don't create original content. I scan constantly, see something interesting, repost. Sometimes all I'm just like, wow, that's like my post on top of somebody else's post. Other times, or I'm just like insightful. Right. Um, and other times I write like 10 paragraphs. Um, it, particularly if it, if I can take something that's happening in a policy sphere and say, as a woman with women's health issues, who's also a physician, 
this was my experience of this technology or this hospital administrative whatever. Very, very interesting. In our last few moments together, I'd like you to look into your 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 crystal ball. We talk again in 12 to 24 months. What will be different with healthcare and the, the internet? Well, I mean, it's all over the news, right? Chat GPT, natural language processing, um, uh, you know, what in healthcare for sure. I mean, AI is all over the place. Um, will it be, I, and I think this is why physicians absolutely have to be online following, at least lurking, at least follow the trends, see what people are talking about, see what's coming at you, time box it, don't let it take over your life, don't get addicted to it, but know what's going on, right? But AI, um, you know, uh, language processing, natural language processing, um, actually for me, what's super exciting is they can actually now use natural language processing to scan patient narratives online and even like surface things for clinical trials, like hypothesis generating, which I just think is so cool. Um, or that can be used for EHRs, right? You can actually take all of the, you know, cut and paste garbage that's inside EHRs and she literally put it into ChatGPT and it will just summarize. You can't ask ChatGPT to search for things because it'll literally make things up that don't exist, but you can ask, you can feed the information you want it to summarize and it can spit out a summary. So um, I think there, that's a real opportunity, but we saw what happened with EHR. It was a B2B business to business model, vendors from tech selling it to hospitals, with doctors and end user, but not the economic buyer, right? The economic buyer who was coughing up the money was hospitals to make their to make us so-called more efficient, and we see what happened. So I think we really, again, not at the table, you're on the menu. Yeah, just be in the room, read the room, um, and wherever possible, engage. But again, just understand we're used to talking in doctors' lounges, in privileged relationships, the whole world is listening. So just be thoughtful about how you express things. And if something goes wrong, it's okay. You just simply say, Mia culpa, I'm here to learn. Please tell me how I could do it better. And the vast majority of the world responds very positively to that. That's an encouraging note. And that'll have to be uh, where, where we leave this fascinating discussion. My guest has been Dr. Marie Nahal. Dr. Nahal, thank you so much for being on Sound Practice. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. My thanks to Umbreen Nahal for her time and thoughts. Dr. Nahal has found a way to use social media to educate thousands of people on a routine basis. My thanks also to the American Association for Physician Leadership for making this podcast possible. Please join me next time on Sound Practice. We release a new episode every other Wednesday. You've been listening to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders. Check out the show notes for this episode at soundpracticepodcast.com. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Email us at info at soundpracticepodcast.com. Subscribe to Sound Practice wherever you listen to podcasts so you can automatically receive our episodes. And please rate us and comment on the podcast in iTunes and Google Play. Sound Practice is presented and produced by the team at American Association for Physician Leadership. 
We are the world's premier organization for all aspects of physician leadership in every sector of healthcare. Learn more at physicianleaders.org. Holy cow, that man is Robin. Rip, rip, kapow.